0: Well, I want to start by saying welcome again to uh, First Methodist Mansfield. My name is David. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I especially want to welcome you if this is your first time here with us, whether first time here at the well or upstairs in the well cafe. There go the lights. Hello. Um, or uh, just first time uh, here at this church. Uh, we're delighted to have you as our guest. And in uh, our connecting points after the service are people who'd love to answer any questions you may have about the life of our church. You've already uh, seen one expression of that with the presentation of second grade Bibles. I want to tell About uh, Wednesday night, uh, we honored uh, seniors, had a great senior class, uh, many who will be graduating uh, this week, a great banquet for them. And uh, Pastor Johnny, our student ministries pastor, uh, shared a great message with them as we uh, honored those seniors. One of the things that he shared that I thought was, I really enjoyed it, meant something to me personally, having served as a youth pastor in in the beginning of my ministry. uh, He said, You know, as, as I approach uh, this moment and think about the time that we've invested in you and he said my heart is sad because I'm going to miss you I'm going to miss seeing you every week. He said, but my heart is glad When I think about all the people who have not met you yet And the way in which you're going to make an impact on the world And I think that's a beautiful picture of what the church is meant to be a church that trains and equips uh, uh, young children from uh, from very early on through second grade the presentation of a bible and celebrating the graduation uh, of seniors as we unleash them on the world and pray that god uses them to be a blessing Uh, in the lives of others. And so, good job, church. Uh, Thank you for what you do each and every week to to help us fulfill that mission. Uh, We're starting a brand new series this week that I think you're going to enjoy. We're going to be in it for the first five weeks of the summer. That's right, I said summer. I know you can't believe it, but today is, in fact, June 1st. Just step outside if you don't believe me, I promise, it's June 1st, and we're starting a new series entitled, The Gospel According to Disney. So here's what I want to do today. I want to talk a little bit about why we're doing this series. I want to establish what's going to be the central theme for us as we move through uh, the next five weeks. I want to talk about the first movie that we're going to look at in this first week. Uh, We're going to see some themes in there that relate to a particular biblical character who went through similar circumstances. And I'm going to end the message today by just asking you a question. A question that I hope that you will take home, that you will think about, that you will wrestle with a little bit in your life. But that's where, the, that's where we're going to end up, is just at a question. So when we get there, I'm almost done. So there you go. There's your little, uh, uh, there's your little secret to how the message is going to end. Let me start with the why. Uh, 1923, Roy and Walt Disney uh, decided they wanted to go into business Uh, The Business of Making Cartoons. So you can imagine how at 22 years old that conversation went between Walt and his parents. But that's what he said. He said, we're going to go into business. We're going to make cartoons, Mom and Dad. It wasn't until 1928 that they had their first breakout hit, which was Steamboat Willie. uh, A cartoon in which a particular character was introduced to the world for the first time. A character by the name of Mickey Mouse. A character that was originally named... Mortimer Mouse, that was Walt's original name, but his wife Lillian talked him out of Mortimer uh, and talked him into the name Mickey. In 1927, a year before that, Walt had tried to sell Mickey Mouse or the concept to MGM, but he was told that no one was going to respond to this mouse character. In fact, they said, women are going to run out of the theater screaming if you put a mouse on the screen. That was a little bit of a mistake there. But anyways, 1930s brought us their first feature-length film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, in 1937. April 2nd, 1940, the Disney company went public, and later that year they released Pinocchio and Fantasia. 1941 was Dumbo. 1942 was Bambi. The 1950s brought us Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland. I don't know if you've heard of any of these movies. Peter Pan, uh, the Mickey Mouse Club. And in the 1950s, they opened up their very first theme park in California. A small little place known as Disneyland 1960s, uh, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and Mary Poppins In 1966, Walt Disney uh, died from complications from lung cancer And the next year, his brother Walt began construction on their second theme park Which opened in October of 1971 in Orlando, Florida A little place by the name of Disney World Since then, they've done fairly well for themselves. Uh, In 2012, uh, in all of their theme parks worldwide, they had 126 million guests. Now, let me give you a, a little scale here so you can understand that number. There are nine countries in the world that have more than 126 million people. 126 million people is more than one-third of the population of the United States. That's how many people visited their theme parks in 2012. Uh, the company, the Walt Disney Company, is now number 66 on the Fortune 500. It is the largest entertainment company in the world uh, with a revenue in 2013 of 45 billion dollars two brothers who said we want to make cartoons so if you knew nothing about Disney which is probably none of you but if you if you showed up this morning and you went what in the world is this Disney thing you had no clue about what Disney was and you heard that very short history you would probably wonder uh, how in the world did that happen what was it about this concept, this idea, this, this dream of two brothers that started with just making cartoons? How did that grow into a multi-billion dollar conglomerate that has had tremendous influence on American culture? How did that happen? What, what is it that made that possible over the scope of almost the last hundred years? What, what is it about the Disney story that has allowed it to make such a tremendous impact on our culture today? And what I want to suggest to you in this series is that the answer is a lot more simpler than, than you might think. The answer is simply this, that Disney has told compelling stories. Disney has told compelling stories over and over and over again, releasing uh, movies, many of these that you have heard of, and many more that have been released since, that each tell compelling stories. And what's perhaps even more amazing than that is that Disney has, in fact, I would argue told the same compelling story over and over and over again. The only thing that changes are the characters, the world in which they live, the songs that go with them. But essentially, I think you could make the argument that they have told the same story over and over and over again. It's a story of of a character overcoming insurmountable odds. It's a story of a character who embraces the opportunity of a second chance. It's a story of a character who at one point in the movie may be completely lost, but somehow finds themselves, and in finding themselves they make a difference in the lives of the other characters who are part of the story. It's the same story over and over and over again, and every time another movie is released, we line up at the theaters to gladly give them our money to hear the same story told over and over over and over again and why do we do that because it's a story that we want to hear it's a story that we need to hear it's a story that within us we desperately want this story to be true it's a redemption story It's a story of the world being set right again, of a transformation happening in the life of a character, and their life that may have been headed one way, in a way that they didn't want to go, uh, is suddenly transformed and heads in a a brand new way. It's a story that we love to hear, because it's a story that we, we want to be true, we long to see realized in our own lives, and it's a familiar story to us, because the story of Jesus that brings us to this place is a redemption story. It's a story of a hero who comes to set the world right again. It's a story of a hero who faces insurmountable odds. It's a story of a hero who, who at one point in the story, it appears that that, that good is going to be defeated, that, that all hope has been lost, but somehow in a miraculous turn of events, at the very end of the story, the story shifts and changes and hope is reborn and good finally does win in the end. It's a redemption story. And so these stories that we see, they, should, they, they ring familiar to us because they connect to the story of our faith. But, but here's the central theme of this entire series as we move through the next five weeks. Here's the other level at which I think these stories should sound familiar to you. And that is this, that your life is meant to be a redemptive story. Your life is meant to be a redemptive story. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've made that commitment, if this is the direction and the trajectory of your life, then your life is meant to be a redemptive story. And so what we're going to do over the course of the next five weeks is we're going to look at these five different expressions of this same story and in doing so, we're going, to, we're going to do that for the purpose of seeing how they speak to our own lives. Now, if this, if this idea doesn't make sense to you, that your life is a redemptive story, I'm okay with that. That may be the first time you've ever heard that before. That may be the first time you've ever thought about that before. But over the course of the next five weeks, I hope that, that, that moving through this series will help you to see how your life might be a redemptive story. So, we begin today with the 1994 film The Lion King. Uh, most of you have probably seen this. If you haven't, uh, you may have seen the Broadway show. Uh, but in, in case you have no understanding or no knowledge of The Lion King, let me just briefly walk you through the plot line of the story. The story begins by introducing you to two main characters. The first uh, is the king of the Pride Lands, whose name is Mufasa, he's a lion. Uh, And he and his wife have a young cub named Simba. In the very opening uh, parts of the movie, you see Simba and his father spending time together. You see Mufasa taking Simba out and showing him the scope of the kingdom that, that he will one day rule over, talking about the Pride Lands. And as he does, Mufasa is training his son and teaching his son, instructing his son on what it means to be a good king. A third character enters the story very early on. If you know literature, if you remember high school, this is the antagonist in the story. It's the uncle whose name is Scar. He's the younger brother of Mufasa, the uncle of Simba, and we learn very early on that that Scar is not a good character. Uh, He's kind of a sneaky guy, and he plots with the hyenas to have Mufasa and Simba killed so that he can become king of the Pride Lands. His plan is hatched, and in the tragic moment of the story, Mufasa, the father, is killed, though his son Simba is rescued because of the heroic acts of his father. Simba in his grief... Goes to his uncle Scar to be uh, to receive comfort, but instead, what Scar does is Scar heaps onto Simba guilt, blaming him for his father's death, guilt that sends Simba into exile. He leaves the Pride Lands, allowing Scar to become king of this area. While in exile, uh, Simba meets Timon and Pumbaa where they sing the very memorable song Hakuna Matata, a song that trains Simba in a new way of living, not the way of life that he was taught by his father, but a new way of life that he learns in exile while he's playing with his friends, a life where he has no worries and no responsibilities for the rest of his days. In a chance encounter, He reunites with Nala, a childhood friend, and Nala shares with Simba everything that has gone wrong in the Pride Lands while he has been gone and Scar has been serving as king. And Simba faces a difficult choice. Will he remain in exile? living a life of no worries for the rest of his days, or will he return to the pride lands and reclaim his kingdom and accept the responsibility that he has to serve as the king of his people? We enter into the third act, in which Simba returns... Simba fights Scar. Simba defeats Scar. Sends him into he banishes him from the Pride Lands. Simba gets the girl. They have their own young cub, and the oh, the ending uh, 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 scene celebrates that Simba has returned to his proper place in the circle of life. Now there is this recurring theme that we find in Disney films and we find in, in many pieces that would be described as classic literature and it is this, that something significant happens in the life of the central character, the main character in the story. Something so significant that it sends their life on a brand new path. And the recurring theme, what happens more often than not, is not a good thing. It's not a great thing. It's not that they win the lottery and they have all this money and they don't know what to do with it. What often happens to the main characters in these stories is that they experience a very negative Thing in their life, a bad turn, something bad happens to them, a tragic moment occurs, and they have to learn how to overcome this tragic moment where all hope seems to be lost. Uh, So this morning, somebody gave me this list, not knowing what my sermon was about. I, I had a few of these written down. These are the movies that Disney has produced, just a quick list, there's probably more, in which the main character loses one of their parents, Cinderella, Snow White, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Lion King, Frozen, Sleeping Beauty, Aladdin, Finding Nemo, Bambi and Brave. All of those movies feature a main character who has to deal with the loss of their parents. In The Little Mermaid, Eric tells Ariel they can't see each other anymore. In Beauty and the Beast, the Beast dies. And in my favorite Disney movie from my childhood, Copper tells Todd in The Fox and the Hound that they can't be friends anymore. There's this recurring theme over and over again throughout these stories in which the main character experiences a moment of tragedy and somehow has to overcome the, the, the circumstances that that creates for them, the challenges that it creates for them in their life. Donald Miller uh, calls these moments negative turns. His book, uh, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, would be a great summer read if you want to check that out. It's about screenwriting and storytelling and how that process can help us understand how to live a better story with our life. But he talks about these negative turns, these, these moments that happen in life that we never expected to have happen and how we deal with them. And the biblical character that he lifts up is the example of this is the character Joseph. And he actually has mapped out a timeline of Joseph's life I want to show to you now. Uh, Genesis 37 is where the story of Joseph begins. It begins with the young boy Joseph, who is one of the twelve sons of Jacob, having a dream. And in this dream, this young boy has this vision of all eleven brothers bowing down before him. Now in his youthful arrogance and naivete, he decides it would be a good idea to tell his brothers about this dream that he has had. Hey hey, guys, by the way, I just had this dream in which you all bow down to me. Doesn't that sound like a good dream? Well, they weren't too excited about that, and so what Joseph's brothers decide to do is to throw him in a well. After they throw him in a well, they kind of feel a little bit guilty about that, and so they go back and they and they pick him up. But then they realize, why why throw our brother in the well when we could sell him into slavery? We could make some money off the deal, which is what they do. They sell Joseph, their younger brother, into slavery. Uh, and, and he becomes a slave in Egypt. So this great moment happens in Joseph's life. He has this vision that his brothers are going to bow down to him, but then, but then life takes a negative turn. He actually ends up in slavery, which is not at all the fulfillment of the vision that he had. Joseph does well in slavery because of his wisdom, and, and so he grows in stature to the point where he becomes a leader in the house of Potiphar, who was a military commander. He learns how to, to run a b- bureaucracy in it, in, while he's fulfilling this role. But while he's serving in this role, uh, Potiphar's wife kind of gets a crush on him and chases after him and accuses him of having an inappropriate relationship with her when he chooses to not have an inappropriate relationship with her. And he loses the status that he had in the house of Potiphar. While in prison, back in prison, another negative turn, he meets the the baker and the cupbearer from the house of Pharaoh, which is kind of a positive moment. He gets connected to people who might save him from this life that he's living. In prison, but after the cupbearer gets out of prison, he forgets about Joseph. And for two more years, he spends time in this prison. Until later, uh, the Pharaoh has a dream. And because Joseph had correctly interpreted the dream of the cupbearer, the cupbearer many years later remembers, hey, there was this guy in prison that I knew named Joseph. Maybe he can help you out, Pharaoh. And he does. Joseph comes and he stands before Pharaoh. And he grows in stature and becomes second in command of all of Egypt. While in that role... Joseph helps Egypt prepare for a coming famine. He does it so well that Egypt is the only area that is prepared for the famine. And because they are the only place that has food, Joseph ends up being reunited with his brothers. Which is not a positive moment, at least at first. It's a very painful moment. Where Joseph and his brothers are, or Joseph is faced with this, the remembrance of this tragedy that happened in his life, of his brothers rejecting him and throwing him in a well and, and selling him into slavery. But eventually, Joseph convinces his brothers to relocate uh, and, his, and to bring his father, who's never recovered from the loss of his son Joseph, to, to come to Egypt. Joseph forgives them, he restores them, he saves Egypt, and his story inspires the world. But let me tell you a little bit about how the story ends. So Genesis 50 tells us that Jacob, the father, dies. And after Jacob dies, the brothers get a little bit uneasy. They start to think to themselves, you know, Joseph's been really good to us. He's taken care of us. We've we've got food now. We have homes. We are special guests in the house of Pharaoh. But dad's gone now, and this might be the moment when Joseph takes his revenge. So here's what they do. They go to their brother Joseph, and they they say, Joseph, there's something we forgot to tell you. Uh, While dad was on his deathbed, he said to us, you weren't there, don't worry, but we promise he said this, he said to us that his last dying wish was that you would forgive us for what we did to you. True story, it's in the Bible, go check it out. Genesis 50, they make up this story about dad because they're so worried about what Joseph is going to do. And so they say, yeah, hey, this is the only thing that dad wanted. You know, you've got to fulfill this wish. You, you, have, you have to forgive us. And this is, this is how Joseph responds to them in verse 19. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now I want you to hear very carefully what Joseph doesn't say. Joseph doesn't say, hey, it's no big deal. This, is, this was God's will for my life. God wanted you to throw me in a well. He really wanted me to go to prison. He was really excited about me being a slave. You were just a pawn in God's game. So no worries here. He doesn't say any of that. He says, what you did, what you did hurt. God didn't create the negative turn, Joseph says, but God redeemed it. Because God is good and God is loving and God is caring. God used... These moments in my life to help me become the person who could fulfill this task of helping to save many lives. I, I spent time in, as, a, as a slave and I spent time in prison and while I was there I learned what it, what it was like to be forgotten. And, and while I served in the house of, of Potiphar, and I had this role, uh, even though I lost that, I learned how to manage a bureaucracy and to take care of things, and that helped me and trained me to to be the person that, that, that I needed to be to help Egypt and to and to help you. And all of these things that happened in my life, it, it wasn't necessarily God's will for my life. It wasn't necessarily the path that He laid out for me. But but what God did along the way is God took care of me. He was there for me. And even in those moments where others did things to me that were intended it for my harm. God intended it and used it for my good. God worked in my life and changed me and shaped me to be the person that I needed to be. So again, we said that, just to reset, we said that the, the, the Disney model, the formula works because they tell compelling stories. They're stories that we want to hear. They're stories that we long to hear. Stories of redemption. Stories where, where the world gets set right again, where, where good wins in the end, where someone uh, receives a second chance and embraces that second chance. We said that our life is meant to be a redemptive story. And we said one of the recurring themes that we find throughout these stories is the idea that negative turns happen There are bad things that happen that the character has to deal with and the character has to get past. So, So here's the question I want to leave you with. Has anything bad happened in your life that God wants to use for good? Has anything bad happened in your life that God wants to use for good? Is there a moment in your life that you this morning can look back on and you in your heart can say, I really wish that would never have happened to me? You can look back on that moment and you can see how your life was, was forced into a new direction, a new tra- trajectory. There were challenges that were created for you that you never intended to face. And maybe within you there is this sense of regret. There is this sense of, uh, of wishing that that thing had not happened to you in your life because you recognize the challenges that you had to go through because of that moment. Is there something that has happened in your life that, that was bad? that God would want to use for good, if only, if only you would let him speak into those moments and heal that pain and deal with the suffering and the challenges that has created in your life and somehow in a way that only a good and caring and compassionate God can do, turn that into something good. Last night, the sermon ended there at that moment. Uh, but sitting in the back uh, last night was my dad. Uh, my dad and uh, my mom and my sister were here. They, they, they watched our daughter this weekend. They did something at their church, and Anna was with them. And, and when, I, when I saw my dad back there, I was reminded of a story that I, I didn't know if I could tell while he was in the room, so I'll, I'll tell it to you now. When I was in, when I was in second grade... Uh, We moved from Meridian, Texas to Red Oak, Texas. Uh, So we moved into a new home. Uh, My dad got a new church. He's also a pastor, if you don't know. And I went to a new elementary school. And I remember in those first few months I made some friends which of course when you move you know that's something that you worry about and I don't remember much from second grade I don't remember much from elementary school in general some of you may have great memories of that time that you can recall I don't I don't have a lot of them there's only a few moments that kind of pop into my head and this is one of them it was a day in second grade early on in that year when I walked from the school the three or four blocks to my dad's church it was kind of our way of reconnecting at the end of the day I would walk to uh, to the church it was only a few blocks down the road i remember that day that several of my friends went with me which is a little bit different they that was unique that they there was a big group that came with me and when i came around the corner coming to the church was this big bush and and there were some steps up and when i came around the corner another kid jumped out at me to scare me and all my friends laughed and that moment kind of devolved into second grade boys fighting, which isn't really a fight. It's more, you know, it's the second graders rolling around. But I remember, I remember my dad coming out and coming around the corner and kind of chasing all the other kids away. I remember feeling so humiliated in that moment. Because I was there with some boys that I thought were my friends but I realized that the only reason that they had come with me that day is because they'd kind of set this whole thing up, and they wanted to see me, they wanted to see me scared. I remember the sense of humiliation of, of my dad seeing me in that moment, and I remember what he said to me in the car ride home that day. He said to me, "Son, I'm sorry that that happened to you." I don't remember anything else from second grade. My apologies if you're a second grade teacher, but that's it. That's all <laughs> That's all I remember from second grade. I remember that moment of humiliation. And, and I'll tell you, that is the only time in my life that I have ever told that story. I just thought of it last night as he was here. Now what that story has done for me is that in my life today, when I see someone who is afraid or someone who is scared, someone who is feeling shame or humiliation, I know what that feels like. I know what that moment is like. And so there is this this empathy and compassion that, that wells up within me whenever I see someone else in a moment like that because I've been there. I know that. And while what happened that day was a horrible thing that I wish had never happened to me, especially at that very young age, it's done something for me in my life. It's helped me understand what it's like to be in that place, that place that many people find themselves, where they are alone and scared, shameful and humiliated. Because I've been there, I remember that moment. But the other thing that I remember, and, and, and the words that were probably the most meaningful for me that day, that may be the most meaningful for you today, were the words I heard from my dad when he said, Son, I'm sorry that that happened to you. This This may be beyond your imagination, something that you cannot fathom yet. But is it possible that the words that God would most want you to hear about the bad thing that has happened to you in your life is son or daughter, I'm sorry that that happened to you. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. I'm sorry for the pain that that caused you. I'm sorry for the, for the suffering that you walked through. But I want to heal that. And I want to use it for good. Your life is meant to be a redemptive story, which doesn't mean that life is just going to be rosy and wonderful and great. That's not the journey of faith. The journey of faith is a God who walks with us through those seasons of celebration and those seasons of good sorrow, of great sorrow. A God who says, I'm sorry those things happen to you and I want to be with you and to heal you if only you will let me. So I want to invite you perhaps to see those negative turns in your life, those bad moments in a brand new way today and to invite God to speak into them and to heal you and to allow what someone may have intended for harm to, by the grace of God, be something that can be used for good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for walking with us through every single moment of life. We thank you for the compassion and love and grace that you have for each of us. And we thank you, Lord, for the knowledge that when our hearts hurt, when we find ourselves in pain, when we find ourselves in those moments that we wish we could avoid, that you hurt with us and you grieve with us. And you, as a good and loving Father, long to heal us in those moments. So give us the courage, Lord, to open ourselves up to you today. To allow grace to enter into those dark places. And for the work of healing, maybe for the first time, Lord, to begin. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.